Our scripture reading is from the book of Acts this morning. Very familiar passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. So I invite you to read this together with me from the board as we lift up our voices reading the word of God together. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning as we have opened our hearts and our mouths to you in song, singing your truths and begging for your presence among us. Lord, I pray that you have heard and have been glorified. I pray that your presence is with us. And as we come into this time now to be instructed in your word, Lord, I pray that you would move distractions, that you would help us to focus intently upon you and your glory and of the mission of the church, and that you would give us a renewed hope, renewed vision, a refreshed idea of what you expect of each and every one of us. Father, as we talk about practical issues, Lord, give us a will to to do them and obey them. Give us a heart to know you, a mind to learn of you. Lord, you have the words of life. Where else could we possibly go? Open our hearts now, Lord, to hear that word, that we may be refreshed and cleansed, that we may know you more. Move me aside and speak to every one of our hearts. It is in your name we pray, amen. Amen, you may be seated. By the way, if you hear me cough, I promise it's not COVID. I've had, uh, I had a bit of a head cold the earlier part of this week and it went away really quick, but there's this, been this just residual cough that just will not go away, so... So, uh, so I'm wearing my mask, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, sanitizing my hands and, and all that, but, but just don't think that I have COVID, okay, so, because I don't. Uh, we're looking at, um, I was really wondering if I'd be able to sing today, so, so you guys helped me out a lot. You guys are singing loud today, so thank you for that. We're looking at Acts chapter two this morning, and there is a, a method to the madness of what we've been doing. I know it seems like we have been looking at just kind of random passages week after week after week and, and talking about um, the, the different truths that come out of them. But what I, what I'm, there is kind of a method to it, and that is as we're coming out of, of the COVID crisis, the pandemic and all of that, <clears throat> obviously there's a question of, well, where do we go from here? And, and one of the things that I want to do is I want to get us back to, uh, for lack of better words, kind of a reformation, um, a, an idea of, of what we do as a church. Is it defined biblically? Is it defined uh, all of this? I know there's a, there's a temptation for many of us that now that we're coming back, we can do, uh, we can do whatever we want to as, as a church. And, and that is not uh, what we can do. That is not what the Lord wants us to do. Uh, we don't want this to be our church. We don't want this to be one person's church over another. We want this to be the church of Christ. 
Now, we don't mean that in the denominational sense, so don't get scared there. Um, it's a shame that they have taken that, but we, we are the church of Christ. We are Christ's church. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. It doesn't belong to any of us. It belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to the pastor. Uh, it belongs to Jesus Christ. I know I come across authoritative when I'm preaching, but that's because I'm preaching God's word, and God's word is authoritative. But but on, on all these other things, uh, we, want to, we want to decide how we can, we can come out of COVID stronger than ever. And so we talked about the first Sunday. What is our ultimate goal? It is to glorify God. That's our ultimate purpose. And that, was, that is what must define everything. And we saw that God enables us to glorify him. We're not able to do it through ourselves. We're not able to glorify our way into God's will. But instead, he enables us to glorify him through grace. And that grace came through a person, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And how is Christ delivered to individuals? What is God's plan for bringing Christ to the world? And that is the church. And we saw last week that God gifts the church and, and we focused on a few gifts on kind of the organizational aspects of the church, but really God has gifted every single person in this room to, to use your gifts and to use your abilities that he has given you in order that the church may function according by his grace, according to his gifts and to meet his goals. And so that's really the theology of the church. That's the theology behind everything we do. So now the question is, how do we take that theology and how do we make it practical? What is the church supposed to do? What does that mean for us? And that's all great, but how do we put that into practice? And I think we have an inspired summary here in Acts chapter 2 and what we see in the early church. Of course, we can talk about what the church does, and I think, it's, I think before we do that, I think it's important to see who, the, who is in the church. And so, and that's where verse 41 comes into play. Luke describes them in verse 41 as basically having two characteristics. And, and the number one is that they receive his word. Look what it goes back and says, those who had received his word. And I want you to notice this. I've got it in the NASB up there because I like that translation better because, because they had made a firm commitment to receive his word. That's what, the, that's what the language is coming across. And this is not the normal term for receiving. And in fact, it's a very odd term that only Luke uses this. And he uses it in other cases of welcoming a guest into your home welcoming a friend into your home, those kinds of things. And so these guys are welcoming the word of the Lord into their lives. They are responding by bringing it into their hearts and into their lives. What does that mean to receive the word of the Lord? Well, Luke in context, I think he tells us in verse 21, for example, he tells us that uh, in, the, in the words of Peter in the sermon, it says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what does it mean to receive the word? It means to call upon the name of the Lord. We're talking about total dependence there. We are depending upon the name of the Lord. We are depending on his salvation for everything we do. And then in verse 38, 
we see that we are to repent. We are to repent of sins. That's what it means. I really should use water, but I didn't have time to get it. So we are to repent of sins. They turn from their sins and they will receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And that is the marks of the new covenant to receive forgiveness and to receive the Holy Spirit. Well, why don't you guys go get me some water from the fellowship hall? I appreciate it. And so that's the first thing. They received his word. But the second one is that they are baptized. They are baptized. And what do we mean by baptism? Jesus told his disciples to make, to make disciples, and those disciples are marked out by baptism. To be baptized is to publicly proclaim that I am now saved. It means that God gave us, it's the means that God gave us to testify to our salvation. <laughs> So um, those, who, those who have been baptized, that's a seal of God's ownership of us. Those who have been baptized are admitted into the church because they have claimed the name of Christ upon themselves. Baptism is the means by which we proclaim our salvation to the world. It is the means by which we identify with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't save us. Some people read verse 38 that way, but it doesn't save us. But what it does is it announces to the world that we are saved. Baptism doesn't qualify you for church membership. Uh, only salvation does that. But baptism is the testimony that God, Jesus Christ, has qualified me for church membership. I am testifying that this is the reality of my life. So those who have received the word and those who are baptized are those who um, are admitted into the church. <laughs> so after they receive the word and they are baptized, what happens? What does the church do? And that's what we find in verse 42. Um, the church is characterized by these three essentials that we see for Christian growth. Now, historically, these are referred to as the means of grace, Sometimes that terminology can, can suggest some things that we don't like. So, so, so this is three essentials for Christian growth that God has given for the church to do. That every person who comes into Calvary Baptist Church, if you want to grow in Christ, these are the things that the church should be doing to help you do that. And so, and I, and I want you to notice here that they are devoting themselves. And again, I like the NASB because it indicates a continuation of it. They are continually devoting themselves to these three essentials, and these are essential for spiritual growth in the church, in the Christian life, through the church. And here's what we find. Number one, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. In verse 42, we're gonna be here the rest of the time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And, and as you, now let me, let me just back up for a moment. As you read the book of Acts, you need to be a little careful because not everything the early church did are things that are normative for the church throughout history, okay? For example, we don't speak in tongues anymore. We don't prophesy. Uh, there are churches that say that we do because we see it in the book of Acts. Well, the, the church in the book of Acts also sold everything they had 
and formed a communal kind of, kind of place. And we don't see them doing that. So we do see the Amish doing stuff like that and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, what, we, we have to be a little careful with what, we, um, with what we say is normative in the book of Acts. And really our best, our best guide is what we see in the rest of the New Testament. And what we see in the rest of the New Testament is that there is a constant, continual emphasis on these activities, whereas we don't see that with the other activities. So Luke makes very clear throughout the book of Acts that the apostles' primary role, their primary activity was teaching, was teaching. In fact, this is what Jesus told them to do. Matthew 28, verses 19, 18 and 19. He says, you are to make disciples. How? By baptizing them. We've already talked about that. And by teaching them. And what would they have taught? Have you ever thought about what they would have taught? What were they, what were they learning about every day? <coughs> I don't think we have to guess. They would have been taught, number one, about the promises of God. The promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ. They would have grounded them in the truth that Jesus Christ is the central fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. They would have shared the stories of Jesus's ministry, what, those same stories that we find in our gospel. They would have reasoned from the Old Testament and showed them that Jesus is the Christ that was promised. They would have explained the new covenant promises that we have in Christ and the significance of our being in Christ. All this, they would have explained to their people. They would have, they would have grounded them in those truths. But I don't want you to think that just because you hear teaching that these are dry, dusty lectures. These are theology lectures like what you would get in a boring seminary class or something like that. That's not what we're talking about here because they not only would have taught the promises, but they would have taught them practically. Look what Jesus goes on to say. He doesn't say just teaching them, but teaching them to what? Teaching them to observe. They would have given practical input. Yes, they would have taught them the theology of Christ, but then they would have taught them what that theology means for their everyday life. Just like we're trying to do in this series. Many of the same topics and practical teaching we find in the New Testament probably would have been covered. In fact, we were, I was getting ready for my New Testament survey on uh, Thursday night, which ended up having to be canceled because of something with the school. But I was reading through Colossians and through Philemon again, and I came across something that I never actually thought about before. Have you ever wondered why it is that Paul always sent his letters, and actually all the apostles always sent their letters with a trusted companion? Have you ever thought about why they did that? Rome had the ancient world's most developed postal system. It was very similar to the popular Pony Express in America. They could cover 170 miles per day in this postal system, it's estimated. It was much more efficient. It was much quicker if Paul would have sent the letters through the Roman postal system, but he didn't. He always sent his letters by a personal, trusted companion. Why did he do that? Because when that trusted companion got to the church, he not only would have read the letter, but he also would have explained it as he read it through. 
He also would have explained what Paul was saying. He would have answered questions. And I suspect he probably would have oversaw the application of it. You say, Randy, where are you getting that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Colossians chapter four. In verse nine, it says, and with him Onesimus, which is, uh, he's referring to the situation in Philemon. Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, watch this, they will tell you of everything that's taken place there. So Paul's actually showing that when his, when his um, letter carriers got there, they not only read the letter to the church, but they explained it as they went. In other words, Paul and Peter and James and all these apostles, they, they wrote the New Testament letters with the explicit purpose that when it arrived at their church, they would do the same thing to their letters that we are doing today. Isn't that awesome? We're participating in the same things that they did when they were originally written. When we read the scriptures, explain their meaning and help you to apply them, we're using the scriptures precisely how they were intended to be used. And this is how we are faithful to the apostles' teaching. Now, I don't mean just in the pulpit on Sunday morning. We're also talking about small groups. We're also talking about Sunday school. We're also talking about personal discipleship. We're also talking about all that. But the point is, is that we are continually devoted to the apostles' teaching in various formats. That's the point. And that's what we want to be faithful to. This is not only what the church did. It's I think it's foundational, but it's not all they did. They were also devoted to the fellowship. It said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship. Now, this is not a term that we often use outside the church. Let me ask you a question. Outside of a church context, when's the last time you asked one of your buddies at work, say, hey, you wanna go uh, grab a burger during our lunch hour and have some fellowship? Chances are they would have looked at you kind of weird, right? It's not a word that we often use, unless you're a Tolkien fan. It's not a word that you often use outside of a church context. And so there can sometimes be a little confusion of what it means. Those who were added to the church were continually devoting themselves to the shared life of the church. That, that is what fellowship means. At, at its most fundamental level, it means sharing. It means partnership. It's a sharing, a shared experience of the life of Christ. It's sharing that experience with others. For example, when uh, the Fellowship of the Ring bore the one, when Frodo bore the one ring, what did the fellowship do? They shared in that, in that mission of the bur- carrying the burden of the ring and also in the mission of taking it to Mount Doom and destroying it. And I think that's a really good example of what we see in the scriptures, that, that what kind of fellowship are we talking about? Well, number one, they shared in the life of the church. They participated in the life of the church. In fact, in secular Greek, when this word is used, it was often used to talk about the kind of mutuality that you would find in marriage, the kind of partnership that you would find in marriage, the, the sharing of life together, the sharing of identity, a sense of connectedness, a sense of belonging. I think one of the greatest tragedies of the modern church is that this sense of belonging to the church has gone away and now we, we go to church we don't really belong to the church anymore. That, that sense has gone away, that shared identity. 
Beloved, church is not something we go to. It is an identity that we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is an identity that we have. It's, it, it, we, we, we belong both to Christ and to one another. It's something you're a part of. It's something that we are devoted to, the shared experience of the life of Christ together. Our hearts are knit together by our common experience of God's grace in our lives. Sounds great, doesn't it? How do we build that though? That, that sounds like pie in the sky. What, how do we build that? I think the best expression, there's all kinds of commands in the New Testament, but I think the best expression are what we call the one another commands. The welcoming of one another, loving one another, forgiving one another as you've been forgiven by Christ, bearing with one another. Mourn when they mourn, celebrate when they celebrate. All of these and, and many more. There's a wonderful book by Dr. Stuart Scott, who is uh, one of my favorite professors and a uh, and uh, a very big influence on my life. It's called uh, Becoming a One Another Christian. And he just goes through every single one another command and talks about how we can do it practically in the church, both in small groups and in the large assembly, how we can do those things. I think that'd be a good study for us. So it means that we do these things for one another. It means that we practice these things together. But we also participate in the mission of the church. The mission of the church. Paul often speaks of his companions and, and the churches uh, in terms of their participation in the gospel. And he, he refers to this for everyone, whether they are his personal companions that are there with him in the trenches doing the work, or he refers to the Philippian church who, who sent him support so that he could continue the work. Whatever it is, they are partners in the continuation of the ministry, the continuation of the, of the mission of the church. That is fellowship. Beloved, when you give to the Annie Armstrong offering for the North American missions, you are, you are fellowshipping in that mission. You are taking part in that mission. You are cooperating in that mission. When you give to the church and a portion of it always goes to mission work, both North American, both local and both international, you are participating in the mission of the church. And my prayer is, is that you are participating in it personally as you go out and share the gospel with your friends and neighbors and, and, and all of those. We never know unity until we're in the trenches together. You'll never know unity. You'll never know commonality until we're in the fight together. You know, Satan's not worried about the guy who's sitting on the sidelines. Not worried about the guy sitting on the bench. He's worried about the football player with the pads and sweating blood and tears to win the game. Those are the ones that Satan wants. And from those who went places to those who worked with him, all of them participated in the mission of the church and the gospel of the church. All of it is vital to the ongoing mission to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is our mission, to carry the gospel to the world. But there's also an internal mission in the church as well. 
an internal. Fellowship is expressed in our building up of one another in Christ. And it's expressed in several ways in the New Testament. It's, it's um, uh, for example, let me show you a couple passages. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, three, I believe it's first. No, Hebrews chapter 10. He says, let us consider how to stir up. That's one of those one another's. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how we can encourage one another, how we can stir up one another to greater love and to good works in the church. And by the way, the next verse after that is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. And so what do we do when we come in the assembly? Do we just sit in the pew? No, we consider how to stir up one another. We consider how to encourage one another to greater love and greater good works. Hebrews chapter three says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't want to lose anybody to the hardness of sin and the hardness of corruption and bitterness. We don't want to lose anybody to those things. And so we exhort one another. We pray for one another. We, we go to holy war against sin and the lives of one another. We stir up each other. We, 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 we encourage We pursue them. We don't run away from trouble. We run to trouble. So we exhort one another. And by the way, this is also expressed in Matthew chapter 18, the passage on church discipline, which is called, I don't love that term because discipline has the negative connotations of, you know, we're gonna kick them out. That's not the goal there. The goal is to restore. I like to call it restoration. We have those principles there. All of this is a part of the mutual discipleship that happens when the church is on mission. All of this is a part of what we do. And our goal is not just to get you in the door and in a pew on Sunday morning. Our goal is to, is to encourage you, to stir you, and to exhort you into Christ-likeness. That's more than a Sunday morning. And by the way, that's more than we can do on a Sunday morning. That's why there's continual devotion. That's why there's continually devoting ourselves. Life in Christ is not a lone ranger sport. It's not a spectator sport. Participation, participation in a biblically fellowshipping church is vital to your growth in church. I hear so many people today, they say, that I like to go to the big church. I like to go to the mega church so, so that I can just go and worship. And then I can leave and not be bothered with all the rest. Beloved, that's a pretty sorry view of a church. That's an unbiblical view of a church. And I understand why some people want that because they've been hurt, they've been abused by some churches, and that does happen, and God forbid that that would ever happen here. But beloved, that's not the church. You don't know what you're missing. You don't know the power that comes from the church united. In biblical fellowship, on mission to help one another grow in Christ-likeness. You can't do that on your own. You can't do that without commitment. 
You can't do that unless you're part of a church that is functioning biblically. And by the way, as a church, this is our responsibility to you. When you join our church, we're, we're taking on a commitment. You're making a commitment to us, yes, but we are also making a commitment to you that we will be there. We are, we are now, you're, we are committed to help you become more like Christ in your life, to raise your children in admonition of the Lord. All of these things, we are committed to this. We're making that commitment every time someone joins our church. At least I pray we are. And so, what difference does church membership make? It makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And so, they're committed to fellowship, but finally and very quickly, the third essential, which I've actually taken two and just kind of lumped them together, which is there's essential, the third essential is worship. The third essential is worship. They're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those two are kind of are put together in the original. And so we're gonna consider them together. The breaking of bread and prayers. What are we talking about here? Uh, just to save time, let me just say, I think we're referring to the Lord's Supper here. Uh, even though it's probably not the best term, I do like to call it communion. We are talking about the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And I think it's absolutely, I think it's absolutely beyond question that the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, was part of the normal life and the normal ministry of the church. In fact, I think evidence suggests that every time they got together, they did it. Every time they got together. Now, that's not commanded. Jesus said, as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say how often to do it. He just says, as often as you do. Now, if we're gonna err on one side, I think we should err on the side of often and not on the side of seldom. But, uh, and we've talked about that before, but, but I, I think it's beyond question. Acts chapter 20, verse seven. Uh, whenever they got together on the first day of the week, what did they do? Uh, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to do what? To break bread. It expresses, why is this so important? Because it expresses our participation in Christ. It expresses our participation and mutual participation with one another. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, a, a very interesting passage in verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, this is talking about communion, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When we take communion, there's nothing magical that happens. But what it signifies is that we are, we are in participation in the life of Christ. We are in participation with Christ and we are mutually participating with one another. And so that's what communion expresses. It rejoices in the provision of Christ at the cross. It remembers and contemplates the cross. It calls for self-examination and purging of sin. It reminds us that we all, when we come to communion together, it reminds us that we all come to Jesus Christ on equal footing. None of us has a leg up in salvation. Reminds us, and that's why we take it together, by the way. That's why we wait for one another when we take it, which by the way, we're actually gonna be taking it next week. I might need to order some more, uh, some more uh, disposable cups, huh? 
So since, we're, since we've got a bigger crowd, it's gone. For those of you who weren't here, we're not gonna pass it out. It's a, anyway, you'll see. So it rejoices in all of these things and all of this leads us to prayer. All of this leads us to prayer. It's the common uh, expression of our dependence. Communion expresses our participation in Christ. Prayer expresses our dependence on Christ, which is really what worship is all about. It is expressing our participation and it it is expressing our dependence. All of that is based upon Jesus Christ. The fact is we are weak and powerless to do any spiritual good in our own effort. And so we must be 100% devoted to prayer. Amen? Now we must be 100% devoted to personal prayer. Yes, that's an absolute closet. Prayer is an absolute must. My beloved, there's just something powerful that happens when God's people get together in prayer. Jesus says, when you agree on anything on earth, it will be done in heaven. That's not a license to ask for anything we want. But there's just something powerful when when the church comes together and prays together, really prays together. Why is that? I think it's because when we pray together, and I mean really pray together, we come to the realization together that we are completely dependent on Christ. It forces us to humble ourselves. It forces ourselves to see that we cannot do this on our own. And what does the scripture say? God resists the humble, but gives, excuse me, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Beloved, do you want to see the power of God's grace break through in your life? Then humble yourself. As a church, we must humble ourselves. And humility is expressed in nothing better than prayer. A prideful person will never pray. Or they will never pray in a right way. Oh, they may pray telling God what they think he ought to do, but they will never pray dependently. A prideful person can't do that. And a prideful church won't do that. But beloved, do you wanna see the power of God's grace break through? Then humble ourselves as a church. Come together in united prayer come to that united realization that without Christ, we are nothing. And there is not a marketing technique in the world. There is not a crowd-pleasing technique in the world. There is not a crowd-funding technique in the world. There is none none of those things will make anybody Christ-like. None of those things. We can build a crowd, but only Jesus can build a church. And so... We must humble ourselves. Remember what we said? What's the theme of this whole series? The one who gives the grace, what? Gets the glory. The one who gives the grace gets the glory. You wanna see the glory of God unleashed at Calvary Baptist Church? And recognize that we are fully dependent upon his grace. 
And that's done through prayer. That's done by doing things his way. We must become completely dependent upon his grace, not just for salvation, but for our lives. And beloved, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you don't know his grace. You don't have his grace. Your life is going forward just simply on the best of your own intentions and inventions. There's nothing you can do of any spiritual good. But God stands ready to give you the grace that you need to be saved. Jesus Christ came and died for you. He lived a perfect life for you, earning the righteousness you need. He died on the cross to take your penalty and now he stands at the right hand of God the Father and he offers you forgiveness and mercy and new life in him. If you will come to him by faith alone, in Christ alone, you will be saved and you will know the glory of God in your life. So I beg you to come. I beg you to come and have a conversation how you can know the grace of God. We're not doing a traditional altar call right now because of COVID restrictions, but I will be here after service. We have other ones who will be here, both men and women. They would love to stick behind and tell you how you can know Jesus Christ as your savior. In church, I pray that we will humble ourselves. I pray that we will see more of God's glory because we become more and more dependent upon his grace. The one who gives the grace gets the glory. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the promises of your word. And Lord, even through my weakness this morning, through the disgusting coughs I've been doing and all of that, I pray even through, your weak, through my weakness, your strength has come through. It was never my strength to begin with. It was never my clarity of thought. It was never my clarity of voice that had any power whatsoever. It's only you. And I pray this morning, Lord, you would demonstrate even through my weakness that I've demonstrated to them. Lord, I pray you would demonstrate your strength that something was said or done that would lead some lost soul to you, that would lead some Christian to a, a greater will of sanctification that will, that will bring about your glory in our church, Lord, through this demonstration of weakness. May you have the glory and we know that you, you will not have glory through us unless we do it completely upon your grace. So Father, may you glorify yourself in us. Through our weakness, you are made strong. So Lord, be magnified this morning for the God that you are. We glorify you. It is in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing this chorus.